If you take your Bible and find your place at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in just a few minutes we're going to look beginning at verse 10 and we're going to look through verse chapter 6 verse uh, chapter 6 verse 6 and we'll be looking at those verses in just a little bit. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, guide us now into your word. We continue our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're learning wisdom uh, from a man to whom you had given wisdom. We're learning from the experience of a man who walked away from you, who turned his back on you, and he found the emptiness and the gloom and the loss. And I pray, Lord God, that as he writes in his journal here, and he tells us what it was like when he turned his heart away from you and how he saw life and how empty and unfulfilled life was, I pray, Lord, that we'll learn from him. Some of us, Father, are just stubborn. We're only going to learn one way. We're going to have to do it ourselves and bang our head against the wall and bloody ourselves in the process. And, Lord, we ask you to forgive us for being so stubborn. But, Lord, there's a lot of people who are willing to learn from someone else I pray that I can be one of those. I pray that there are many hearing my voice today that will be among those who can learn from others and assimilate the truth and assimilate the wisdom that's given to us by Solomon into our own lives. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I not only preached the services on Sunday morning, I also taught a a Sunday school class. I enjoyed that Sunday school class and all the people that were in that class. And I appreciate those years. I'm not as young as I used to be. I don't recover as quickly as I used to, but I really loved that time of, of teaching Sunday school. In that class was a man by the name of Gary Hale Sr. Gary was not only a wonderful man, a godly man, but he was one of our deacons. And he was a tremendous help in our ministry. And Tremendous help in, in many different ways in seeing God bless our church. Well, at this particular time when I was teaching, I was talking about marriage. And a lot of the couples, a lot of the people there were couples. There were some singles in the class, but a lot of them were couples. And we were talking about marriage and you know, some of the things that cause disagreements and, and fights and conflict in marriage. And I asked a question and the question went like this. What is the number one cause of divorce in America? What is the number one cause of divorce in America? Well, I asked that question, and it just laid there. It felt like two or three minutes. It was 10 or 15 seconds, but it just laid there, and nobody said anything. I don't know if they didn't know the answer or whether they were afraid to say the wrong answer and the question just laid there, and there was an awkward silence that just went on for what seemed like way too long. And finally, from that seat where Gary Hale was uh, sitting, he said, the number one cause of divorce in America is marriage. <laughs> well, I, I guess technically <laughs> that would be correct. The number one cause of divorce in America is marriage. I guess technically that's correct. But the right answer, the answer at that time, I don't know if it's still true today, but the, the right answer was money. 
Uh, People argue over money. They fuss about money. They get into conflict over money. They're spending too much money. They don't have enough money to spend. They've bought too much on credit cards. They got indebtedness they can't pay. And all the stresses and all the pressures cause all of these difficult problems and many times results in couples getting divorced over money. Well, today we're not talking about marriage though that may be the number one cause of divorce in America. But we are talking about money. And I realize how close that subject gets to us. A lot of you just grabbed your billfold, and you're going to hold on for dear life through the rest of the service because we hold our money so dear and so close to us. But we're going to talk a little bit about the wisdom of Solomon about the subject of money because Most of us believe that if we just had a little bit more money, that life would be a whole lot better. That if we just had a little more money, that we could be a whole lot happier than we are at this moment. If we just had a little bit more money, we could buy the things in life that we say are missing from our lives. It's been reported that someone said, whoever says money can't buy happiness doesn't know where to shop. (laughs) Well, it depends on what you mean by happiness. If you're talking about cheap thrills, if you're talking about, you know, entertainment, if you're talking about, uh, you know, quick uh, and not lasting, non-lasting kinds of events in life, entertainment and so forth in life. It, yeah, you might be able to buy that kind of happiness with money. But the reality is that money is woefully inadequate to buy the fulfillment and the meaning and the purpose that God intends for our lives to have, that money is insufficient when it comes to the things that really matter to the things that oftentimes we wish we had in life but are missing those things in life. You know, sometimes when I'm preparing a series of messages, it's interesting how God brings across my path things that, you know, coordinate and come parallel with the very things that I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about? By the way, you think about the lottery when it gets over certain dollar figures, don't you? And you think to yourself, hopefully you're not playing it and wasting your money on it, but you you think about, you know, what would I do if I had $100 million? What would I do if I had $300 million? What would I do if I had $500 million? What would I do? You've dreamed, you've awakened in the night, and you have seen uh, that clearinghouse publishers guy knocking on your door with the oversized check, right? And you've thought to yourself, what if I had that check being delivered to me every single week, every single week for the rest of my life? What could I do with all that money? Because inevitably we think in the back of our minds, if we just had more money, it would take care and make us really happy. It would make us fulfilled. It would make us have meaning in life. We'd have purpose. There'd be reason for us to go on. I... uh, This past week got a fax. I don't get faxes at the house. The fax came to the church here. I don't have a fax at my house, but it came to the church. And it's funny how these things happen when when I'm preaching through certain subjects on certain matters. It comes from Crawford Law, Barrister and Solicitors. Uh, It has the address. It has the phone number. And it says, says, Dear David Lemming, my name is George Coleman, J.D., 
I'm a partner at Crawford Law Canada. It may surprise you to receive this letter from me since there has been no previous correspondence between us. There is an unclaimed permanent life insurance policy held by our deceased client. The transaction pertains to an unclaimed payable on death savings monetary deposit in the sum of $13,030,000 United States dollars with a reputable bank. The policyholder was one of our clients, Mr. Alan Lemming, who worked with Energy Company in Canada. He died in an accident in Toronto, Canada nine years ago. Since his death, no one has come forward to claim and all of the efforts to locate his relatives have proved unsuccessful. And if I will simply send them certain information, <laughs> that I can be one of those who collects the $13,030,000. Now, we all know that it's a scam. But Mary was thinking, maybe we should try. No, no. <laughs> I promised her a lot of things, but $13 million wasn't, wasn't one of those things. We all think that way. We think that if we had just had some money, then somehow that would change our lives. And in some ways, it would. So let me begin by saying this morning that I'm not trying to denigrate the importance of money. Money is a part of life. Money is necessary in order for us to conduct life. If you don't have money, you can't pay your bills. If you can't pay your bills, you don't have a house. You don't have food on the table. You don't have clothes on your back. And, and let's, let's be clear that what Solomon is going to tell us and what other authors in the scripture tell us is not that money is the problem. As a matter of fact, Solomon isn't going to condemn wealth itself. What he is going to say is that it cannot satisfy us or fulfill us. It can't do for us what only eternity and only what God can do in living according to the will of God. The problem is not with money itself. It's with the heart of the person who loves it too much and counts on money to do for them what money and things were never designed to do. Money is currency that we all have to have, and if we had a little more, probably most of us could enjoy that and thank the Lord for it. But the fact of the matter is the deeper needs of our lives could not be met no matter how much money we had. You might buy temporary, cheap thrills, happiness for a little while, but the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And money can never fill that void. Only God can fill that void. And just so that you know that Solomon knows whereof he speaks, Solomon was the richest man of his day. I'm not going to have you turn to 1 Kings chapter 4. There's a couple of verses there. Or 1 Kings chapter 10. There's a number of verses there. But in those two passages of Scripture is listed some of the wealth that Solomon had. Now, when you think about Solomon's wealth, there's two ways to measure it. You can take the weight of the measurements and calculate their value based on today's gold and silver prices. Or, secondly, you can figure out the purchasing power of a certain amount of gold, as well as the other materials that are discussed in Bible times, and find the modern amount that has the same purchasing power. 
But by either standard, Solomon was lavishly, extravagantly wealthy. Uh, his domestic revenue was just under $600 million. He had shipments that came from Ophir that were $400 million. He had gifts from the Queen of Sheba that were $108 million. He had 200 shields and 300 bucklers hanging in the palace that were worth $52 million, if you use that one standard, the first way of measuring. His annual revenue conservatively is estimated to have been $1 billion. That's by that first measure, how you go about you know, taking what was uh, you know, in the days of Solomon and making it equivalent today. Conservatively, his, his worth was $1 billion. If you look at it the second way, if you use the second method of, of evaluating his wealth, combining all of King Solomon's assets, when converted using modern currency values, it equals a whopping $2.1 trillion. I mean, somewhere between $1 billion and $2.1 trillion is the wealth that Solomon had. I think you would say that's pretty wealthy. We'd say he was a rich guy, wouldn't you? I mean, he was a rich guy. Any of you in the room have a billion dollars or $2.1 trillion? Would you please stand? I'd like to meet you. <laughs> and so when he speaks about the subject of money and its inability to be able to satisfy we're talking not about somebody like me who hasn't been there and who doesn't have that kind of money where you can buy anything you want. There's nothing that's outside of your price range. Just get it for me and I'll pay for it. I'll write you a check and the check won't bounce. You're talking about a man who had every ounce of money that you could possibly imagine and he could spend it any way he wanted. Isn't that what he was doing in the first two chapters? He was spending whatever it cost to indulge himself everything that he possibly wanted. And yet he said it still was chasing after the wind. He said it was vanity, it was emptiness. It's like a mist that's there for a moment and then it's gone. It can't fulfill, it can't satisfy. Solomon would have known. You and I may never know. I don't think any of us probably in this room will ever know what it's like to have a billion dollars or $2.1 trillion dollars. But Solomon did. And Solomon gives you some wisdom about this kind of money and what it cannot do. And he gives five statements about it, beginning in verse 10. First of all, he says, he, he who loves silver, verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Nor he who loves abundance with increase, this also is vanity. There's a couple of words that you want to, you want to circle. The, the two times that he says loves. He who loves silver. He who loves abundance. Think of the New Testament for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6, verse 10. For the what? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money in and of itself. It is the love of money. I've got to have it. I've got to have more of it. 
And you'll notice when he says silver, he's talking about money. When he says abundance, he's talking about wealth, the accumulation of money. So he's talking about loving money and loving the accumulation of wealth. And he says, I want you to know that no matter how much money you amass, no matter how much money you make, this is vanity. It's emptiness. And you know why? Because with abundance, he says, we always want more. That's what he's saying. You love silver, but you're not satisfied. You love abundance, but you want more increase. You you always want more. More is never enough. Enough is never enough. There's always something else that you want. And because you have the buying power to be able to buy it, you just keep wanting something else. Now, please understand, these are proverbs. These are general principles. This is not always true. These are not always true of every single person. Some of you are wise enough to understand what money can and cannot do, and you're able to use money in appropriate fashion. But for many of us, no matter how much money we have, no matter how much the abundance is, we always want more. And don't the advertisers recognize that? Don't the advertisers recognize that? They're constantly playing on our what? our dissatisfaction. We've got to have something better. We've got to have something more cutting edge. We've got to have the latest and the greatest. We've got to have something bigger. We don't want to be left out. We don't want to be the one who's the odd man out. We don't want to be the one who doesn't have what everybody else has. We've got to, and they play to that discontentedness. And so we constantly live in this state of discontentedness, thinking we've got to have more. 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 And Solomon says that's vanity. It's emptiness. You get more, and you still want more. You get the latest, and they come out with another latest. You get the cutting edge, and it's soon the dull edge. There's always more. So with abundance, he says, we want more. But then he says, secondly, in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? In other words, not only with abundance we want more, but with abundance we consume more. Uh, Have you noticed that when you were living in an apartment and you didn't have to take care of any of the upkeep of the outside of the apartment and all the grass that had to be taken care of and all the repairs, but then you decided you were going to buy a house, which, by the way, is a good thing to do. That's an appreciating item. That's a positive thing to do. Every young couple should desire to own their own home and build equity in their home. That's a good thing to do. But have you noticed that when you buy a house, that there's always something to do with the house? If you decide to grow your business, you have to inevitably hire more people in order, order to take care of the business because with abundance, we consume more. It takes more and more for us to be able to live. I was interested in the story of one of our own people from the state of West Virginia, Jack Whitaker. And I do not in any way wish to add to the pain of that family or to make fun of them. I'm simply using what is in the media. 2002, he won the lottery jackpot. It was worth, it was was a single winning ticket, the largest single winning ticket at the time. It was $314.9 million. 
He took a lump sum payout in December of 2002 of $113 million. Some of the good things that he did, he pledged 10% of his winnings to Christian charities, including several churches. There's a church in Hurricane that was built with the money that he gave to that church. He started a foundation, and out of that foundation, he intended to feed people who were hungry, low-income families. But his life, the article says, became one misery after another. There were floods of letters and visitors that came to his office, to his home, seeking his help financially. He had rows of filing cabinets along one of the offices in his conference room, or the conference room in his office, I should say, on three walls, one filing cabinet after another that were filled with the request. They had to hire security guards to watch his house and his office around the clock. And many of those who wanted his help handled, handled it by coming to his, the front door of his house. Think about that. And it was his wife who ended up having to deal with many of them. Actually, she once said that she would like to write a book about how to handle the limelight when you're suddenly financially wealthy, when you come into a fortune. But you also know the tremendous pain that he had to endure. Not only the loss of someone that his granddaughter knew, but finally the death of his own granddaughter. He said, my granddaughter is dead because of the money. He goes on. The ABC News reports, he goes on, she was the shining star of my life, and she was what it was, was all about for me. From the day she was born, it was all about providing and protecting and taking care of her. You know, my wife had said she wished that we had torn the ticket up. Well, I wish we had torn the ticket up, too. Torn the ticket up for $113 million? Yeah, because with abundance, we seemingly always want more. And with abundance, we always seemingly consume more. Some way it's going to be spent. People are going to start coming up and showing up. Have you ever noticed if you, well, you probably haven't come into money, but if you come into money, have you ever noticed how many family members show up that you didn't know you, you, didn't know you had? How many friends show up that you didn't know you had? I mean, the more you have, the more you consume. He goes on with a third statement, verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. I mean, with abundance, we want more. With abundance, we consume more. But with abundance, we worry more. Isn't that right? With abundance, we worry more. Uh, you know, what's going to happen to it? Huh? If I got it invested right. Have you got money in the stock market? And if you do, you probably have a, a broker who looks at the stock market and tells you don't look at the stock market. You know why? Because if you have money in the stock market and you look at the ups and downs of the stock market every single day, you know what you'll be? You'll be a nervous wreck. 
You'll wonder, should I be selling today? Should I be selling today? It's high today or it goes really low and you get scared. Am I ever going to come back to where I'm just even again? And you get scared. You got all of this pressure that's on you. You hear what he's saying? A man who just goes out, makes a good living, comes home, eats a meal, goes to bed, sleeps the night through. That man's blessed. But the man who's got all of this money, who's worried about whether he can keep it or whether it's going to be taken away from him, whether somebody's going to break in and steal it. By the way, Mr. Whitaker carried around with him hundreds of thousands of dollars in a case in his car and on at least a couple of occasions had it stolen while you're carrying that kind of money. He said, because I can. Had it stolen But you go to bed at night and you can't rest because you're thinking, oh man, how am I going to make this payment? How am I going to take care of this money? What am I going to do if the stock market crashes? What am I going to do? And all of that goes on in your mind with abundance. Solomon says you worry more. You worry more. I, I love the story that comes out of one of our devotionals that we give to people to use. It's about a fisherman and a rich industrialist. This rich industrialist was disturbed when he saw this fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. And he said to him, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman replied, because I've caught enough fish for today. Well, the rich man responded, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? The fisherman answered, what would I do with them? And the industrialist said, well, you could earn more money and buy better boats So you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets. You could catch even more fish and make more money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. And the fisherman asked, then what would I do? And the rich man answered, you could sit down and enjoy life. And the fisherman said, what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) You know, sometimes the common laborer who just makes a living that pays his bills, her bills, able to go through life just living in a modest way is so much better off than the person who's constantly cannot sleep because they're worried about their resources. With abundance, we want more. With abundance, Solomon says, we consume more. With abundance, we worry more. But then he says something else in verse 13 to, uh, and 14. He said, there's a severe evil. The word evil means something that's painful to observe or experience. He says it again over in chapter 6, verse 1, and in chapter 6, verse 2. There's a severe evil, something that's painful to observe and painful to experience, which I have seen. And notice where he's looking under the sun. He's looking at life from man's point of view only. But those riches perish. There's a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept. The word means to guard or protect. He's amassed it. He's he's protecting it. He's guarding it for their owner to his hurt. Why is he hurt? He says, but those riches perish through misfortune. Those riches that he'd been gathering, those riches that he'd been keeping, those riches he'd been guarding, whether it's through some kind of misguided venture or whether it's some reversal of circumstances or whether it's foolish gambling or some other means, he loses it all and he has nothing now to hand down to his son. And he says that's a severe evil because with abundance, we lose more. We have the potential to lose more. You do know that, don't you? You you, you do recognize that, don't you? The more you have to... The more you have, the more you have to lose, right? 
Are you all with me? Yeah, just, just hold on to your wallet. It's okay. I'm not going to take anything away from you. It's, it's okay. It's, it's all right. I'm just trying to give you Solomon's advice. And Solomon says, with abundance, we want more. With abundance, we consume more. With abundance, we worry more. With abundance, we lose more. The more we have, the more we have to lose. It may not even be your fault. It may not even be your fault. In 1923, a small group of America's wealthiest men met at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago, Illinois. It's reported that at the time, they controlled more money than the total amount contained in the U.S. Treasury. And here's a list of who they were and what eventually has happened to them. The first one was Charles Schwab, not the investment firm guy, the Bethlehem Steel guy. Charles Schwab, who was president of, large, of the largest independent steel company with the Depression, he died broke. There's Arthur Cutton. He was the greatest of the wheat speculators of that day. He died abroad and insolvent. There's Richard Whitney, who was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. He died just out of prison. There may be a few more that should be in prison. There's Albert Fall, who was a member of the U.S. president's cabinet, and he was pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. There was Jess Livermore. He was the greatest, they say, the greatest bear on Wall Street, and he committed suicide. And there was Leon Frazier, who was the president of Bank International Settlements. He also committed suicide. And there's Ivor Kruger. He was the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and he committed suicide, though in a book about him, it says that it might have been murder rather than suicide, but he died a violent death. In 1929, when the stocks went broke, when the stocks crumbled, these men lost what they thought was everything because that's all they had, apparently. That's what Solomon is saying. With abundance, we lose more. But he continues, verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb... Naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his, from his labor which he can carry, with, carry away in his hand. By the way, it's in his hand. He says it twice at the end of verse 14, in his hand. Verse 15, it's in his hand. These are possessions. These are things that he held. Verse 16, and this also is a severe evil, just exactly as he came, so shall he go, and what profit has he who has labored for the wind all his days? He also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Wow. With abundance, we want more, and with abundance, we consume more, and with abundance, we worry more, and with abundance, we lose more, and with abundance, are you ready? We leave more. Did you notice that when you came into the world, you didn't have anything? You didn't even have clothes on when you, died, when, when you were born, right? And when you leave this world, you can't take any of it with you. Don't you find it interesting that when you go to Egypt, you find the, the tombs of these pharaohs, these kings of Egypt, that they buried their riches with them, thinking that they could take their wealth along. And guess where the wealth is? Guess where those riches are? Right there, still in the tomb. And you know, when you leave it, by the way, 
The scripture says leaving something to your children, to your grandchildren, is a great thing to do. It commends doing that. But we've got to understand that money has these kinds of things that are attached to it. And the more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you leave behind. You're not going to heaven on the basis of how much money you amass. Do you know how a person gets to heaven? Do you know how a person gets to heaven? They don't get to heaven on the basis of, of their credit or the basis of how big a check they can. I don't even have money in my wallet today. They don't, have, they don't get to heaven on the basis of how much money they possess. They get to heaven on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. They come to Jesus and they recognize that Jesus is the only hope they have, that they are sinners to be separated from God. But Jesus took that separation on himself and he paid the penalty of our sins himself. He paid what we cannot pay in full. He paid it in full. They put him in a tomb and he arose on that third day and he lives today. And every person, any person, no matter whether you're rich or you're poor, no matter where you are on the financial spectrum, you don't get to heaven by what you have. You get to heaven by who you have. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can be wealthy, but you've got to understand, you, you may be wealthy, but you're going to leave it all behind. Just like you came into this world, you go out of this world. That's the reality of it all. And so Solomon then has a change to a positive perspective. With abundance, he says, we want more. With abundance, we consume more. With abundance, we worry more. With abundance, we lose more. With abundance, we leave more. Now you can begin to understand why you can't sleep at night. Oh, man, what am I going to leave? What am I going to lose? What's going to happen to all this? You, just, you can't sleep at night. Sometimes it's better just to have a common job, just go to work, get, get, the, get enough money to, to make a living, have a good life, but don't worry about having extravagant things. But then in verse 18, he gives some positive advice. He says, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink. By the way, that's a phrase. That's a Hebraism that means to be happy, to be satisfied, to have companionship. What do you do when you eat and you drink? You're sitting with others. To have companionship. Fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his hand. What is the change that takes place between verses 10 to 17 and verses 18 to 20? What's the difference? What's included in verses 18 to 20 that's left out of verses 10 to 17? You know it. It's there. Do you see it? In verses 10 to 7, there is no mention of God whatsoever. But in verses 18 to 20, Solomon acknowledges God. 
As a matter of fact, if you could see my Bible, I have them in green. I have arrows pointing to them. Because there's two lessons I want you to take home with you. Two lessons I want you to take home with you. Number one, everything we have is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. If God has allowed you to be someone who can make lots of money and have lots of wealth, that didn't come to you just on your own ability. That's a gift from God. We live in a world that's all about being a self-made person. Well, let me ask you a question. You're such an arrogant, proud, self-made person. Who gives you the breath in your lungs? Who, give you the, who gave you the brain in your head? Who is it that made you to begin with? Who is it that sustains you every single day of your life? It's God. And everything we have is a gift from God. This is what James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have ambition this morning. I'm certainly not saying that if you have the ability to earn great sums of money that you shouldn't do so. You just better make sure that money doesn't have you, that you have the money. You better make sure that money's not shaping you, that you are shaping the money the way it's supposed to be used. Because everything we have is a gift from God. By the way, you will never give to the local church and to the expansion of, of the gospel around the world. You will never do that until you come to the place of recognizing, I am nothing more than a steward of what God has given to me. Everything we have is a gift from God. When's the last time you stopped and you just said, Lord, thank you for the roof over my head? By the way, we're about to replace this roof. And we're paying for it in cash. When is the last time you stopped and said, Lord, thank you for the roof over my head? Th thank you for the clothes I have on my back. When's the last time you taught your children to say, thank you for the food on the table? and the provisions to be able to have the food that's on the table. Everything we have is a gift from God. But I want you to notice the second lesson. Enjoying everything we have is also a gift from God. Enjoying everything we have is also a gift from God. Isn't that what he says? Verse 18, God gives him for a heritage... As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, given him power to eat it, who gives him power to eat it? God does. To receive his heritage, to rejoice in his labors, this is the gift of God. God not only gives you every gift you have, God gives you the ability to enjoy every gift he's given you. And so all of our thanks gets turned back to God. And I don't have time to take you into chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, but he turns that around. God can give the gifts, but he can withhold the ability to enjoy those gifts. And you may live, he says, 2,000 years, or you may have a family that's enormous in size, which were two things that were absolutely significant to, to people uh, of this day. That, that was something they, they lived for. They have large families and long lives. God may give you those things, but he can withhold from you the ability to enjoy those things. 
If you don't stop and you don't acknowledge that they come from him and they are his and you give glory to him for them. I want you to look at one last place and I'll finish. 1 Timothy, if you will, chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to say to everybody sitting in the room, everybody that's watching this service, if God gives you the ability to make great sums of money and mass great amounts of wealth, thank God for the gift he's given to you. And remember the enjoyment of that gift is the gift of God as well. If you don't have those things, if you don't have that kind of a mind or those kinds of abilities, I certainly don't. I'm having to trust the Lord for retirement. What, Lord, how am I going to live in retirement? Lord, I, you, I'm going to have to trust you every single day. I may have to be a greeter at Walmart and wear my mask. Listen to what he says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment, there it is. I wanted to talk about contentment, and I didn't get here fast enough. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. Isn't that what Solomon just said? And it's certain we can carry nothing out. Isn't that what Solomon just said? And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Now, listen. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And why would, they, why would it happen? Why would that destruction perdition happen? Because they love money, and that's the root of all kinds of evil. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things. Here's what Solomon's been telling us. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. That means to give, be generous, be a channel of blessing, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That means to lay hold on the rewards that God has for them. You may never have great sums of money, but I've got great news for you. Everything you have is a gift from God, and God is the one who gives you the ability to enjoy those things. I read an interesting story this week from David Jeremiah. It's a story about J.C. Penney. I, I didn't know it was J.C. Penney. I thought it was J.C. Penney. I thought I was buying these very expensive suits, J.C. Penney. But after building a flourishing build business, Dr. Jeremiah says, he became filled with despair. Isn't that what Solomon said? The more you have, the more you have to lose, the more you have to leave. J.C. Penney built this, this business, this flourishing business, but he became filled with despair, and he checked himself into a hospital waiting to die. And no doctor could do anything for him. One evening, the certainty of his death just flooded across Penny's troubled soul. He was writing farewell notes to his wife and his loved ones 
when he heard the singing of nurses in a chapel down the hall. The words he heard were, no matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Depending, these words were from the voice of angels. Something was suddenly born, it says, within his soul, an absolute assurance that the old faith was true and that he was completely in the loving hands of Jesus and need not fear anymore. Mr. Penny climbed out of his bed immediately, fully cured physically, emotionally, spiritually. It says he was a brand new creation. And he left the hospital immediately. He rebuilt his sagging business empire to unprecedented heights and served God magnificently the rest of the days of his life. And if Mr. Penny were living today, I think he might be aghast at what they've done with his company. God will take care of you. If you live in a mansion, it came from God. And the ability to enjoy it came from God. If you live in a little three-room house, it's a gift from God. And the ability to enjoy it is a gift from God. Let's stop and thank God for what he's given us.